good morning again. Please find First uh, Thessalonians in your Bibles, please. <clears throat> By the way, we sang Come Thou Fount. I remember seeing that as a new believer and wondering what in the world does it mean that I have raised mine Ebenezer? Well, you have to read the King James of 1 Samuel 7, and you know that uh, Eben and Ezer, two Hebrew words combined together in the English, it's Ebenezer. It means stone of help. Samuel put that stone up and said, uh, hither by God's help we have come, thus far the Lord has helped us. And so it's a, it's a good word to know, it's a good story to read, so... Just in case any of you were puzzled by what in the world is an Ebenezer, now you know. First Samuel, I think it's chapter 7. Well, it has been a good day already, right? It's so beautiful to hear Tina sharing her story, to seeing, seeing her give a, a visual picture of what God has done in her life. And I, I know you are all blessed by that. I've been so blessed as well by being a part of that. And hearing her story takes me back to my story because uh, this week, uh, Karen and I will not only celebrate 32 years of, of her endurance with me, but uh, I will also mark 40 years since I came to Christ. I, I know sometimes people don't know dates, but I, I do happen to know the date. And so that's a lot of um, reflection for me as well to think the Lord has put up, well, he put up with me, he's put up with me for over 60 years, but put up with me when I should have known better for 40. <laughs> so, um, fact is, Jesus changed my life as he, Tina gave testimonies, changed her life. He's changed many of your lives as well. It's what he does. He, he changes lives. And that's what we find in Paul's words to the Thessalonians this morning as he writes about the radical change that took place in their lives through the gospel. So let's read it uh, starting at verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So as we've seen in chapter 1, Paul is is driven by a theme of gratitude for what God has done in their lives. He's especially overjoyed now to tell the Thessalonians what he's hearing about them from others. And as he does, he's talking about this radical change that has taken place. And as he does that, he gives us a beautiful description of what it means to come to know Christ. Um, radical uh, literally means, we think it means like wild or, you know, something like that. It really just, it's related to the root. It is a root change. It's a profound change, a fundamental change. We, we change, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. New things have come. He makes not superficial changes, but profound, deep, lasting change of heart, leads to a change of character, which leads to change of behavior, every area of life, right? The word commonly used to describe this, although it only appears a couple of times in the Bible, is conversion or converted. It's a very important theme in Scripture. 
And each of us, as well as we as a church as a whole, need to have a clear understanding of what conversion is because it's, it's key to a church's health. That's why whenever anyone comes for baptism or for membership, one of us sits down with them, hears their story, their journey, their spiritual journey, understanding, trying to discern where they are with the Lord and are they clear about the gospel. And, and that really is the baseline for, for recommending somebody for membership. That's just vital to the life of the church. We don't ask for dates and times any more than a doctor asks for your birth certificate. We just look for how things are going <laughs> and where you are if you seem to know the Lord. So... Um, an understanding of conversion is important, but let's understand first what it is not, okay? What the Thessalonians experienced was not religious change, okay? It was not. That is, that is not conversion. Religious change is performance-based, and that causes actually a couple, of a couple of problems. For one thing, it doesn't address the root idolatries that drive our behaviors, it only addresses the service. Remember, where Paul met the Thessalonians in the synagogue in Thessalonica. So they had already been with people who knew the law of God and at least acted like they kept it, right? But no external law can change the heart. Okay, that's, that's like, you know, it's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat, right? A thermometer can only tell you the temperature. It doesn't change the temperature. So... That is what the law does. It shows us how wicked we really are. And we are, just in case you're not sure. But this is that, that no law can change the heart. It's clear in the Old Testament. And it's the big difference between the Old and New Covenants. Because in the New Covenant, the law of God is written on our hearts. That's another way of describing the kinds of changes that Paul talks about here in 1 Thessalonians. So another problem from performance-based religious change is that when we base our acceptance with God on our performance, we tend to awaken two other sins. One is pride, if we think we're doing well, or fear, if we think we're doing poorly. And the, the reality is the, the insecurity of always wondering if we've done enough causes resentment toward God, not, not love for Him. So as we look at these verses, let's think about what Radical changes really happen in us through the gospel, what true conversion really is. And first, let's notice that it gives us a new direction to our lives. Paul uses the word turn. He says, you turned. But notice the word order. He says, you turned to God from idols. He didn't say not from idols to God, but to God from idols. The word order tells us something very important. Because first and foremost, when we turn, we turn to something, not from something. We are turning to God. Now, logically, we almost think from to, but here Paul puts to God first, and I think that that is important for us to understand that following Christ is not primarily about saying no to something. It is about saying yes to Him. Every no that you say at, at a heart level or a behavioral level, it is based on a yes preceding that to Christ. And remember, the, the God to whom we turn, He is a Father who lives in this relationship of love and life and joy and glory with the Son and Spirit and draws us in to that, to that dance, <laughs> to, that, to that relationship. And it's, it's beautiful, it's compelling, and it's something that, that draws us in. 
So if you think following Christ is mostly about saying no to what's going to make you happy, you are sadly and tragically mistaken. That is what I thought. That's what I thought it meant to follow Christ. That's what I thought Christianity was, is, is okay. And I mean, as a young man, I thought, all right, I'm going to go, going to have my fun, and then maybe later I'll settle down and, and get religious again. Because obviously, if you're following Jesus, the fun is over. <laughs> that is how I thought. I truly did not know. Because Christianity, following Christ, is not primarily about saying no to the things that you want. It is first and foremost about being satisfied in Christ. Because there is no one like Jesus. There is no one like him. It's one of the lessons that stood out to me in our study of Proverbs, right? The, the beauty, the goodness, the desirability of wisdom that points us to the beauty and desirability and goodness of Christ. He satisfies the heart, brings changes that no one else, nothing else can bring. Now, there's another lesson from our study of Proverbs that I'm sure you all remember because you hang on my every word, but it is that we naturally desire the wrong things, that that more than what we know, our problem is what we want. But Jesus changes our heart. He changes our desires so that we desire the right things. We find new desires. I experienced this after I came to Christ. I found new desires that, I, that could only be explained by the presence of Christ. He had changed me, made me a different person. And those new desires overcame the old desires. That's an ongoing battle. If you need specifics, you can talk to Karen after but uh, he changed me. Uh, there's a book by uh, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish Presbyterian. He wrote it in 1841. The title sort of reminds you of Here I Raise My Ebenezer, right? It is called the, think about it, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Anybody heard of it? <laughs> Great little book, right? But you get the idea. A new affection, a new desire, has the power to displace old desires. It's like the thief breaks into a store because he desires, he breaks into a jewelry store because he desires the diamonds. Then the alarm goes off and he's overcome by a new desire and that is to not get caught. And that changes what he does. That's what we're talking about. New desires cast out old desires. We don't change primarily by saying no, we change primarily by saying yes to Jesus. And it reminds me of when Karen and I had been dating for some time and a friend of mine said to me, you know, it's really cool that you and Karen are dating. You don't dress like a dweeb anymore. <laughs> now, you know, it's not that Karen demanded that I stop wearing one style and start wearing another. You might ask, do I still listen? I do. Uh, it's just that, well, love brought those changes, right? It wasn't burdensome. I think we did throw away some old clothes. But anyway, it's another story. So conversion primarily means turning to God. But you can't turn to God without turning from someone or something. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. You turn to God from idols. It's like a story you heard about a child came to his parents crying. His hand was stuck in a vase, an expensive vase. And they tried to, to get his hand out and tried to get his hand out. We're telling him, try to relax his hand. And he's upset. And this vase was expensive. And they tried everything. They tried soap to lubricate and to get his hand out. Nothing would happen. And finally, the parents said, well, I guess we have to break the vase. And so they, they broke the vase and they found his fist tightly clutched. And when he opened it, there was a little coin. And they said, why didn't you just open your hand? He said, well, I didn't want to lose my coin. Like if he just opened his hand, it would have come out easily. Well, that's, that's what we're talking about. We, are, we let go of one thing as we embrace Christ. We let go of idolatry. 
So let's notice, first, the contrast between idols and God here. It says that God is the living and true God. So he's the living God. That means he possesses life in himself. No one gives God life. No one sustains God's life. He depends on no one. He depends on nothing. And he is life-giving. He gives us life. And that is essential for us because we are not just uh, imperfect. As uh, Trev prayed, we are, to say we are prone to wander is a, a nuclear understatement. <laughs> Right. We are not just prone to wander. It's more like we're prone to do the right thing occasionally. We are not just imperfect. We are not just prone to wander. We're not just sick. We are dead. We're not just sick in need of a doctor. We're dead and in need of a resurrection. We are lost and in need of a Savior. God is the living God who takes the dead and he gives us life. Now, idols are dead. They are lifeless. They cannot give life. They promise life. They promise satisfaction. You know, your idols never say no to you. They never call you out. They never contradict you. They always promise anything you want, right? But they never deliver. Never. They overpromise, underdeliver. God promises, and He always delivers more than He promises. Because He is also not just the living God, He's the true God. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. He's not deceptive. The idols are false and misleading and deceptive, and they bring death and destruction to us. Thessalonica was known for its idols, over 20 deities that had some role in people's lives, but our idols today are much more subtle, right? And, and much more insidious. We saw in verse 2, as we began 1 Thessalonians, that Paul had commended the Thessalonians for their faith, love, and hope. I said a couple of weeks ago that we are hardwired to exercise faith, hope, and love. That is, we somehow, to some level, exercise faith, love, and hope all of our lives. But apart from the grace of God, they're twisted and they're turned inward on ourselves. So here's the definition of idolatry. It is putting your faith, love, and hope in something or someone other than Christ. And when we do that, whatever we trust, hope, and love, it will destroy us. The American author David Foster Wallace said it well in uh, 2005. He was speaking at a college graduation ceremony, and he said this. I've got a quote on the slide. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He continues, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, Wallace mentioned some of the most common of today's idols, right? You, you heard those. Maybe you can identify with some. Don't raise your hand. Uh, but perhaps the most pervasive idol in our day is what some call uh, expressive individualism or the idol of the, the modern self. This describes the cultural context in much of the Western world today. It tells us that to understand who we really are, we should reject any external authority like Scripture, and we must look inward and then expect that our, 
Whatever we discover in our journey of, of self-discovery has to be affirmed and celebrated by others. As a result, not only do people make identity declarations about themselves that would have been seen as utter nonsense even 20 years ago, and yet everyone is expected to accept and validate and even celebrate these self-declarations, even if we know they're in defiance of God's created order and revealed word, and they are destructive to people that we really care about. So idolatry is misplaced, faith, love, and hope. But when we come to know Christ, our faith, love, and hope are transformed. They're properly directed toward him, for he alone is worthy. And then we discover who we really are as people created in God's image, as people in Christ. So besides a new direction, the gospel gives us, in coming to Christ, gives our lives new purpose. He says that you turn to God from idols to serve the, the uh, living and true God. So what does it mean to serve? He tells Thessalonians this, but serve doesn't mean that we, we do menial tasks for God as if we are nothing more than slaves to him. We're his children. But what does serve means? It, it is more like a life orientation to the God in whose love we have found life. Okay? It's not just doing things. It is, in a sense, an identity. It is who I am. My life is oriented to the living God. It speaks of ultimate commitments, like Joshua challenged Israel in his final address. He says this, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, he's not saying we're going to do good things for God. We're going to do nice things. We're going to do menial tasks for God because I can get my hands dirty. He is saying our lives will be oriented, driven by who God is. And it's like Bob Dylan sang many years ago, right? You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. I'm sorry. I used to be able to do a good Bob Dylan impression. Can't do it anymore. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So it's like Wallace said, right? Everybody worships. Everybody serves. The choice is whom do we serve? Whom do we worship? And the, the words are often found together, worship and serve uh, throughout Scripture. So this helps us see that serving is about life orientation, about ultimate commitments. The gospel calls us to stop regarding ourselves as ultimate. That's what it means to serve. I'm not ultimate, but God is. So I am understanding that I am not ultimate, God is, and we must renounce ourselves to follow him. Now this is usually translated deny yourself. You recall Jesus' statement, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. We, we hear deny yourself and we think, okay, <clears throat> that just means Jesus wants me to not do all of the dumb things I want to do. He just wants me to do less, right? He, so Jesus just wants me to smoke less pot or, or you know, not lose my temper so often or not curse as often. He just wants me to do less of these things that I really want to do. That's not what this means. What he is calling us to do is a reversal of the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden when they chose to define for themselves what was good and evil. We are saying, no, I will not be the master. Jesus is the master. I am not ultimate. He is. Jesus Christ is my Lord, and I will worship and I will serve only him by his grace. Now we also see a third thing here in these couple of verses. 
that coming to know Christ gives us a new hope because Paul says you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait, to wait for his son from heaven. Waiting is an expression of hope. Paul points the Thessalonians and us to our future hope, the return of Christ from heaven. Isn't it interesting? Last week we looked at election. This week we start to get into last things. And those are like the two things you never talk about when you're making disciples, right? Anybody ask questions about election or eschatology, last things, you just think, no, 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 you can wait. And Paul does it with a group of new believers at a new church. It must be important, must be valuable. One of those things I plan not to say, but there you go. So when we come to Christ, we're given a taste of heaven and we long for the fullness. And we... We look to that day. That day is coming. That day is coming when we will be raised to life, when we will, have, we will be on a new earth. There will be no more sin. It will be wonderful and amazing. No more glasses, no more illness, no more sickness, no more death. Nothing. It, is, it will be beautiful, right? We look forward to that. And yet, right now we wait. We have these things in part, but not in their fullness. And right now we suffer. We suffer in various ways. But God uses those things, uses the trials of this life to whet our appetites for heaven, to wean us from the love of this life, to prepare us for heaven. Paul says it well in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You, hear, you feel the groanings, right? You read that and you're groaning over things. We all are, right? Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, because you already have it, right? Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And so we wait because we hope. And this is not <clears throat> hope in terms of wishful thinking. This is hope based on a rock-solid, certain promise from Almighty God Himself. So we wait for Jesus to return from heaven, where He currently is, at the Father's right hand, reigning and interceding for us. The Jesus for whom we wait is the Jesus whom God raised from the dead. So that means our hope is grounded in the climactic act of God in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll, of course, give special attention to that on Resurrection Day in a couple of weeks, but... That is, that is the climactic act of God. This is our salvation, our redemption. This is the death of death, our great enemy. We can face an uncertain future with courage because death itself has been conquered. The curse has been broken and one day will be removed. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, because Jesus was raised, we know that everyone will be raised. Everyone will get a resurrection, some to life, some to everlasting death, right? On that day, every person, every one of us will face judgment from God. And we know that we all fall tragically and horrifically short. And so we have to deal with the issue of God's wrath. This is his indignation that is aroused by sin. He is angry and offended by sin and sinners precisely because he is good. See, if he were not good, he wouldn't care. But he is good. And so he is offended 
and angered by sin. It's not a popular subject, is it? Notice I didn't put that in the title for today, in case you looked at the newsletter. Like, nope, think I'll find somewhere else to go. But you know, God is not embarrassed about this. I mean, he speaks of it often. Jesus spoke of it often. So I think if God's not embarrassed about it, we need to understand it because honestly, this is something we need to know. Let's, let's notice a couple of things about God's wrath. First, it is just. And we tend to think of God's anger like our anger with all of its flaws, that we tend to fly off the handle, lose our temper. That is not God's anger. That's not God's wrath. It is righteous. It is not capricious. It's not subjective. It's not a loss of temper. He is waiting patiently for a day. He has determined in which he will call the earth to account for what we have done. This is the just response of a good God to human rebellion. Now, the greatness of wrath, the intensity, the ultimacy of it, reflects the greatness of God. Think of it like this. If, if you kill a spider, there's really no major consequences except for the spider. But the rest of, the rest of the universe carries on, right? But, but one day, I was here in Prague, and I ran over a dog. And the owner was right there. And here's this older gentleman. He is sobbing because I had run over his dog. Thankfully, there's a veterinarian just a few meters away. I said, let's go. We go in there. Of course, there was, I could tell there's no hope for this. This dog is dead. But here's this man. He's sobbing. You know, go in there. It was an accident. It was not my fault. It was unfortunate. But, I mean, here's this older fellow Nice enough guy. He is sobbing because I've killed his dog. Everybody in the vet's office is staring at me like I had a big sign that says dog killer. <laughs> I hate puppies and babies and I am the spawn of Hitler. You know, <laughs> I mean, just like it was an accident. I feel bad. Not as bad as him, but I, I did. I felt terrible. Hey, but, you know, I mean, and had that been my fault, I would have faced some consequences, a fine or, or something else. But then what if you kill a person? Well, the consequences are much more serious then, right? You kill an image bearer, yes, that's more serious. Even more serious if the person is public official, elected official, things like that. You get the idea, right? Well, if we can accept the fact that God is the ultimate reality, he's the ultimate person, the ultimate being, it shouldn't surprise us that the consequences of defying him are also ultimate. It's, it's justice. Another thing about God's wrath is that it is certain. See, God is not wondering if he should judge the world or not. He's set a date, and that date is coming. Sometimes we'll see his judgment in the sage, and these are small pointers to the ultimate judgment to come. But for the most part, it's not on our mind. We sin in some way. Lightning doesn't strike. Judgment doesn't fall immediately. And so we think, okay. Maybe it's not so bad. We dismiss it. For a while, when I was in university, I was living in something like a dormitory or kolea. It's actually where I came to Christ. And for about a year, for exactly a year, I was, we'll call it like the building manager. Basically meant I collected rent from 40 knuckleheads like myself, uh, paid the bills, kept things working, that kind of thing. 
Well, at some point, we stopped getting an electric bill for the building. Now, I knew I should tell the electric company, but the extra cash let us do some things. I, not for me personally, but, you know, but it, well, maybe for me because it stroked my ego. You know, Uncle Preston got us a Coke machine and Preston got us a video arcade game and Preston got us a microwave. And I'm like, guys, it's just because the organization has money. It's not me. But still, it was nice, right? Made some improvements around. Um, there was a term-defined role, finished my year in that role, transitioned out, and then the bill came. And it was enormous. Worst part about it is at this point I'd become a follower of Christ and that it really wounded my testimony. But um, I, 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 it's one of the worst decisions I've ever made, I have to say. I say this to illustrate this. The bill always comes. Don't think because you don't pay a price today that you won't pay a price in that day. One day... God's judgment will come. It will come. It is, it is certain. There is no hesitation. There is only patience of God. And His patience is designed to, to lead us to repentance. But thankfully, there is a rescue from wrath. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians, that Jesus is the Son of God from heaven who is raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Because God's wrath is terrifying to consider. But the good news is there is a rescue because as you think about the terrifying reality of the wrath of God, this is precisely the terrifying, unspeakable reality that Jesus Christ himself bore for us. This is what he endured, not just the physical suffering, not just the rejection of people he had come to serve, but the wrath of God. And those hours enveloped in darkness that I believe were too holy for human eyes to see, God poured out his wrath for us on his Son, that we might go free. It is beyond our ability to put into words what he suffered and what price he paid. But as the darkness lifted and among Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. This is a commercial term, tetelestai. It means paid in full, zaplatzeno. The price has been paid. And his resurrection tells us not only that death has been conquered, but that the sacrifice Jesus made of himself was in fact accepted for any of us who will come to him. And so you and I can face this certain terrifying day with confidence. Not because we've been good, not because we've behaved, not because we're religious, but because Jesus has paid the price. We have put our hope in him. So if you're already a follower of Christ, first just thank him because you and I barely have a, a glimmer of understanding of the price he paid. We, we scarcely comprehend how horrible sin is and how good God is. So if you're a follower of Christ today, thank him for the price he paid. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, we would just plead with you to renounce yourself, put your hope in Christ, because he indeed alone is worthy of your faith, hope, and love. He did pay this price so that you might have life as a gift in his name. That is how much he loves you and me. So if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, to know forgiveness and freedom and life in his name, please see one of us after the service today. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the new direction you have given to our lives, that you have turned us from one way, taken us a different direction. You've enabled us to turn to you from idols. We thank you for the the new purpose you give to our lives to serve you, and we have served other masters, but you are the best. You are our Father, and you've given us a new hope, and we long to see you. We look to that day, and I thank you for your incredible grace that allows us to look to that day with hope and confidence, not because we've been good, but because our hope is in your Son, whom you raised from the dead. I pray today for anyone here today who's struggling to know what that means, wrestling with life commitment to Jesus. I pray that you will make these things clear to him or her, that they might come to you and know you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.